Father, your word tells us very clearly that those who do good are good and that those who do evil are evil. We'll see that in this very text that we look at today. And Lord, you'll give us examples today of men who are good men and men who are evil men. And Lord, help us to look at these examples and see where we land and make sure, Lord, that we're considered good in your eyes. Lord, we're only good by the grace of Jesus Christ, but that grace changes us, Lord, and we thank you for that grace. And Lord, because of your grace, we can walk in truth and we can walk in love, and that's what we all want to do. And so, Lord, there's just a really good lesson here today, and I just ask that, that you give me the words and um, open the ears here so that we all hear what you want to teach us today. And we just ask that you bless this study. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. In Psalms 105, verse number 15, the Lord is speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he speaks about how he protected them on their journey of life. And listen to what he says in, in Psalms 105.15, he says, I permitted no one to do them harm, no one. And I rebuked kings for their sake, saying to them, do not touch my anointed ones or do my prophets harm. Now, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So it's always been the case that anyone who harms the anointed ones of God endangers their own personal well-being. It's a dangerous thing to do to harm God's people. Well, who are God's anointed ones? Well, anybody. Or Let me ask another question. Who are God's prophets? Anybody who is called of God that is empowered by God for his work, he or she is one of God's anointed ones. And if I were to make a list, of God's anointed ones, close to the very top of that list, especially when I'm looking at the ones in the Bible, close to the very top of that list, if not at the top other than Jesus Christ, I would put the Apostle John. So he's one of God's anointed. But we're going to see this guy today, this guy named Diotrephes, who is going to seek to do John harm. Uh, and this guy is a professing Christian. He's probably pastoring one of the larger churches in the area, and yet he seeks to touch God's anointed, and he's doing a very, very dangerous thing, and that's what we're going to see. And so I've got to set the setting here and kind of ask how this situation came up or show you how this situation came up, and we don't have the exact details of what took place that caused John to write this letter, uh, so I can't give you uh, the exact scenario, but from the facts that we get in 3 John, we can get a pretty good idea of the events that took place that caused uh, John to write this letter, caused Diotrephes to slander John. So let me kind of give you just a summary before we get into the letter. There was this guy named Demetrius, and Demet not Demetrius and the gladiators. He's not that Demetrius. There was this guy named Demetrius. He was a missionary. And he wanted to take some of the people in John's church, the church of Ephesus, and he wanted to take them on a mission trip 
somewhere in the area where Diotrephes Diotroph- was the pastor. And so John sends them with a letter of recommendation. Now, i got to tell you, if I could get a letter of recommendation from the Apostle John, that would be a pretty strong recommendation. I mean, and he was pretty well known in that day, especially in the church. I mean, he was the apostle who sat in Jesus' bosom. Now, if he sent out a recommendation letter, I would listen to that letter. But he goes, he sends these missionaries, and they go to the place, and we don't know the exact place where Diotrephes is the pastor, but he wasn't impressed with that letter. In fact, he refused to assist these missionaries in any way, and he told the members of his church that he would kick them out of the church if they helped these people. Well, there was this guy named Gaius who was going to Diotrephes' church, and he saw the evil in what Diotrephes was doing, and so he took these missionaries in. He took Demetrius and these men in, and he gave them provisions And so John writes this letter to thank Gaius and uh, to commend him for his loving actions. And so that's that's the letter, that's the context of the letter that we're going to be looking at today. So, and and as I said earlier, we can glean a lot of lessons from this. So, So follow along and you're going to see some really neat stuff here. All right, now go to verse number one. He says, the elder. Now, when he says the elder, who is that speaking? That's John the Apostle. Now, why would he call himself the elder? Well, how would anybody know who he was? Well, he was the elder. I mean, he was, I mean, he was almost 100 years old at this point. I mean, he had more credentials than anybody else walking the earth at this point. And so when he said the elder, everybody knew who the elder was. It was the Apostle John. And so uh, he says the elder to the beloved Gaius. Now, what, that's really neat when the apostle of love calls you the beloved Gaius, the one who's loved by God and the one whom I love. And why does he love him? Whom I love in truth. I mean, he writes to Gaius and, and uh, he tells him he loves him. Why? Because he walked in truth. Well, there are those twin towers of Christianity that we looked at last week, love and truth. I mean, you can't have one without the other. You can't have love without truth. You can't have truth without love. And and unlike Diotrephes, Gaius practiced what he preached. And so John loved him. And John says in verse number two, Beloved, he's speaking to Gaius, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. You know what? Let me ask you a question. How much was Gaius' soul prospering? It was prospering pretty well if the Apostle John commends him for his work. If he calls him the beloved, uh, he says, Gaius, my beloved. I mean, if he says that, then he must have been prospering pretty well with his soul. And so John says, I'm praying for you, not only that you continue to, that your soul continues to prosper, but that you prosper materially and that you prosper in health. Man, John, were you a prosperity gospel guy? He sure was. In, in the right way, he was a prosperity gospel guy. He kind of, you know, gives us the prosperity gospel right there. There's nothing wrong with the prosperity gospel. There's nothing wrong with praying such a prayer for people. We should all pray 
for each other that we prosper in our health and in, in our material wealth. Now, here's where the so-called prosperity gospel guys go wrong. They, guys and girls, they claim that it's our right to prosper. It's our right to be wealthy. It's our right to be healthy. So, in other words, you can name it and you can claim it. And if you aren't prospering in health and you aren't prospering in wealth, they say that it's because you lack faith. In other words, if you just have a, the faith, you'll be healed. If you just have enough faith, you'll, you'll prosper materially. But what they're forgetting about is this. In the Bible, it's real clear. What does God put first? Does he put the prosperity of our soul first or the prosperity of our health and wealth first? He puts the prosperity of our soul first. And so sometimes we're not going to prosper materially. We're not going to prosper in health because God is doing a work in our soul. That's, that's what he wants to prosper the most. But look, on the other extreme, there are some evangelical preachers that think that unless you're poor and unhealthy, you're not godly. That somehow God wants you to be, live this life, this ascetic life of misery. That that's what God wants for all, everybody. And the more fairy the trials or fiery the trials, the better your life will be. Well, I don't see that. I heard this one evangelical preacher, very popular preacher on the radio, say one time, right before I quit listening to him. But, but I heard him say one time that he was praying for his church that his members would go through some terrible trials so that God, so that they would grow more spiritually. I would never pray that for you. Never. Let me tell you why. What did Jesus say about trials? He said, in this world, you will have many tribulations. Let me tell you what, you don't have to pray for tribulations. Friends, they are coming your way. You're either going into a trial or you're coming out of a trial. One of the two. That's the way life is. So you don't have to pray for trials. And so uh, if I see someone, the way I pray for you, if I see someone sick, I pray for your health. If I see someone who's, who's suffering financially, I pray for financial help. And hopefully you find those things. And we pray for those things for each other. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. Now, I'm not going to pray for that for somebody who I know is living in open sin, because if they're living in open sin, then they're probably going through what they're going through because God is trying to get them to repent. And so you're wrong to pray for people. who you, If you know someone who's just living blatantly in sin and you know they're living in sin and they're going through some terrible trial, just back off and say, God, please use this trial to, to, to get them to repent and, and to change their life and draw them near to you. But we can pray for each other. We can pray for prosperity for each other. In verse number 3, he says, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in truth. Now, how was Gaius, how did John know Gaius was walking in truth? Because he was walking in love. They go hand in hand. I mean, look, it's one thing to hear the truth and and and. There's a lot of people who hear the truth, but it goes into one ear, it goes in one ear and out the other. When we hear the truth, then that truth should be in us and it should cause us 
to walk in that truth. And, and John was excited that Gaius was walking in truth. Look, if you look at verse number 3, it says, he says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. In other words, it's been assimilated by you. It's been assimilated by you in such a way that you aren't just hearing it and it's going in one ear out the, out the other. It's in you and you're acting on that truth. That's when truth is really doing its work when we begin to act on that truth. And John was so excited about it. Look what he says in verse number four. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, he's talking about his spiritual children here, are walking in truth. I have no greater joy to hear that, than to hear that my spiritual children are walking in truth. Now, that's kind of surprising to me that John would say that. I mean, he says, I have no greater joy. Now, I would think what John would say, I have no greater joy than to know that my spiritual children are walking in love. Because John was the apostle of love, and I would expect him to say love there instead of truth. But really, isn't it the same thing? I mean, really, isn't God's truth all about love? Isn't that what his truth is all about? It, this Bible is about us loving God, God loving us, and lo us, us loving one another. That's, every verse in here is about that. It's all about love. So if you're assimilating the truth, then you're going to be walking in love. You can't help but to walk in love if you've been born again and you're been given the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of love. So if you're walking in truth, you're walking in love, and you can't walk in love unless you're walking in truth. Let me give you some examples. I mean, the Bible says we love God because he first loved us. Well, how do we know he first loved us? Because of the truth of the word of God. How do we know how he first loved us? We know it because of the gospel that's in the word of God. You can't know that. These people that run around talking about loving God and they've never read their Bible, they don't know how God first loved them. God first loved us by giving us his only begotten son, and we love God because of that. So they go hand in hand. Truth and love go hand in hand. Well, let me give you another example. If I love somebody, I don't covet what they have. I don't want what they have. I'm, I'm glad they have what they have. I'm glad I have what I have. And I want you to have the very best, and I don't want what you have. Well, how do I know that? I know that because I know the truth. Paul puts it like this in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, I would not have known covetousness was wrong unless the truth of the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So people who talk about love and yet they don't know the truth, and they've never been in the truth of word, the word of God, they know nothing of love, not agape love. They might know something of phileo love, brotherly love. They'll know a lot of, every American knows all about eros love. I mean, I love McDonald's, or I love my new car. That's eros love. But, but, but to know agape love, you've got to know the truth. And this guy Gaius that we're looking at here in this, in this little book, he wasn't just talking about love, he was walking in truth. And therefore he was walking in love, and John commends him for that. Look at verse number five. He says, 
Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. In other words, you don't just talk the talk. You walk the walk. I mean, you took these missionaries in to your home. They were total strangers, and you brought them in, even at the risk of being excommunicated from your church. You did that. And, 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 and you, verse number six, you've borne witness of your love. Your, the, that the truth is in you. You've borne witness of your love before the church. Now, if you'll send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, if you'll provide provisions for Demetrius and these missionaries, you will do well. Because they were sent forth for his namesake, for, in Jesus' name, taking nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, they went out to minister to these lost Gentiles and they didn't want to take anything from them. They were thinking that Diotrephes' church would help them, but he, he didn't help them. So Gaius took up the, the, the banner or took up the, the baton, and he helped these people. And he says, you'll do well to really help these people because, hey, they're not going to take anything from the Gentiles. They went out in faith. They took nothing with them when they went on their journey. They trusted the Lord for their provisions. And I'll tell you this, Diotrephes didn't help them. And if Gaius hadn't helped them, you think they would have starved to death? Not if God had sent them. If God had sent them, God provides for those he sends out. God provides for those he calls. Let me give you a good rule of ministry. If you ever want to go into the ministry, I'll give you a rule that I've lived by since I've been in the ministry. If God doesn't provide for the needs of that ministry, it's not a God. You need to shut it down. It's not of God. I mean, you don't need, I, I, Chuck Smith used to say this all the time and I loved it, you don't need an 800 number if you're in the ministry. God will provide. You don't need high pressure tactics if you're in the ministry. God will provide for that ministry. He, if, if it's his ministry, then he's going to provide. He will lay it on people's hearts to give to that ministry if it's of God. And I believe it cheapens the church and it profanes the name of the Lord when people are out using high-pressure tactics to get people to give to their ministries. I get really, really frustrated, even from missionaries who start send you these letters and they start talking about, woe is me, I can't pay my light bill, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this. In other words, please send me some money. Let me tell you what, you know what they're telling me? They're telling me that more than likely they shouldn't be on the mission field. Because if they, now let me tell you, let me add something here. If you're on the mission field, if you're doing the ministry, don't expect to get rich, don't expect to be comfortable, things will be tough. And sometimes it will look like you're not being provided for when you really are. But when there's nothing coming in and nothing's being provided for and nothing's happening, then maybe you're in the wrong business and you need to get out. So remember that if you ever go into the ministry. Verse number eight. We therefore ought to receive such. Now he's going to give a principle from Gaius's example for the whole church here. So we want to pay attention to this. We therefore ought to see, receive such help people who are in the ministry that we may become fellow workers for the truth. 
So what's he saying right there? He's saying whenever you contribute to the work of the ministry, to a missionary, to a minister, to a church, you become a fellow worker in that ministry, whether you're out on the field with them or not. And you partake in their rewards. And the greatest reward of ministry is what? That we see people saved. And so when you put your money in that box back there, and I, I, I almost told you to hang on to your wallet before I started this, but uh, when you put your money in that box back there, you're, what you're doing, you're helping to pay the power bill, you're helping to pay the building note, you're helping to pay all the bills. Well, that doesn't, to some people that doesn't seem like a worthwhile cause. But if somebody walks into this building and grows in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, or somebody walks in this building and gets saved, you've taken a part in that. Because we couldn't do that without you. Because together we pay the light bill. Together we, we pay the note. And so, uh, hey, you want to join in the work of the ministry. And whenever you give to any kind of ministry, worthwhile ministry, you become a fellow worker in that ministry. And in this case, Gaius, what he did, he opened up his home and he provided provisions for these men as they went out on their journey and he became their fellow worker. He became their fellow workers. And not only that, let me tell you what else happened to him. He had the joy of getting to know these men and not only did he bless these men, they blessed him. I got to tell you, if you ever get a chance to house one of these traveling, and I'm talking about a real sincere missionary or minister, you ever get to house one of these traveling people, take the opportunity. Some of them, some of them if they're not of God, it'll be a misery, a time of misery. So be careful and make sure they're of God. But if they're of God, you bring those people in your house, you're the one who's going to be blessed. Whenever you minister to people who are ministering, you're going to be blessed. I had an occasion a few weeks ago, we had a group come in from California who were doing flood relief over in Baton Rouge, and they had come back when Katrina had hit, and we had ministered together uh, at the Cajun Dome and down in New Orleans, and and uh, they had stayed at our house, and I'd gotten to know a couple of these guys really well. And they were just such a blessing. And they, this had been, well, Katrina was been uh, 12 years ago. And I hadn't seen them since then. And they called me and let me know they were in Baton Rouge. And I said, hey, man, let's get together for dinner. So we took them out to dinner. And I got to tell you, I took them out to bless them because here they were coming from California to help these people in Baton Rouge. And I thought, well, we'll take them out to eat, and we'll meet halfway and and go out to eat and, and bless these guys. Hey, when it was all over, let me tell you who got blessed. Me and Brenda and Nathan were the ones who got blessed. I mean, it was a group of like 10 people, and they had laid hands on us and prayed for us. And I mean, it just was a great spiritual experience. You don't want to miss those kind of experiences when God gives you those opportunities. And he says now in verse number 9, he says, I wrote to the church, and he's talking about your church, Gaius, but the pastor there, Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now, I believe Diotrephes was pastoring maybe one of the largest churches in the world at that time. A very large church. And here came this group from the Apostle John, 
I got to believe he's a little bit jealous of the Apostle John. <laughs> Look, <laughs> hey, Bob, she's been praying for that. Okay, <laughs> David, don't take that off the tape. People are going to think the Holy Spirit came down or something on all these people. <laughs> I'll never get back to this again. Anyway, he's pastoring this large church with his cell phone in his pocket. And it rings. And he hates John after that. No, that's not how it happened. I, I, I got to believe the guy was jealous of the Apostle John. I mean, I, the disciples were jealous of the Apostle John, so I got to believe he was jealous. And so the Apostle John sends these guys out, and they got a letter recommendation from the Apostle John, and Diotrephes receives this letter, and these guys come up and say, can you help us? We're on a mission field out here. And he's territorial. He's thinking, I don't want to. John's got his church in Ephesus. What's he sending his guys over here for? And, and he's thinking, you know, he's thinking, you know, he's saying to himself, John's an old guy. You know, he's had his day. He's doing things his way. I do things my way. I really don't want, you know, I don't really don't want these guys coming over here. And so John says, I wrote to your church by Diotrephes who loves to have preeminence among his people. He's territorial. He doesn't receive my letter and he doesn't receive my people. Now that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. And that, so John pulls out his pistol. Now John is going to do, a, this is a Clint Eastwood moment right here, verse number 10. Therefore John says, if I come, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. Hey, I'm going to let him have it, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he doesn't receive my brethren from my church. And then he forbids anybody who helps them to help them. And if they help them, he's going to throw them out of the church. This dude's evil. I mean, I can't imagine someone slandering the great apostle John. But this guy was living dangerously. Because he was touching God's anointed. And I wouldn't have wanted to have been in his shoes for any reason. I don't know if John ever made it there and told this guy off, set him straight. But I guarantee you one thing, at some point God set him straight. I promise you. You know, I mentioned earlier if I were to make a list of people in the Bible who I would say were God's anointed, I would have John close to the top of the list. If I were to make a list of people who have ministered during my lifetime, at the top of the list, I might put Billy Graham, but I, I guarantee you, on, close to the top of the list would be Chuck Smith. Now, we never joined Calvary Chapel in order to be followers of Chuck Smith. We joined Calvary Chapel because of what Chuck Smith had discovered. He had 
are, are rekindled. And that was what the early church was all about. It was about studying the word of God. It was about exercising the spiritual gifts. It was about taking communion with one another. That's what the church is all about. It's very simple. And he had discovered, he hadn't, he hadn't discovered it, it's in the word of God. But when he got back into the word of God, he went away from the traditional church because the tra- traditional church was going in all sorts of other directions than that. And so what he wanted to do was bring the church back to its roots, to its simple roots. And a revival took place when he did that. And now there are like 1,300 Calvary chapels throughout the world. And we're one of those churches. But throughout his ministry, he's been slandered. People have talked bad about him. He's dead now. He died three years ago. I think it was three years ago. But people have slandered him throughout his ministry. Paul Smith, his brother, came to the Calvary Chapel Conference I went to several years ago, I say about five years ago, before Chuck Smith had died. And he told us a story about a guy who was running from church to church and going to these big reformed churches and talking bad about Chuck Smith. And he was kind of, that was kind of his ministry. So Paul Smith decided to meet him there one night when he was preaching and listened to what he had to say. And he listened to what the man had to say. And after he heard him, he waited for the, everybody to leave, and he said, uh, can I talk to you? And the man said, yeah. And he said, I'm Paul Smith, Chuck Smith's brother. He said, well, the guy turned by white as a sheet at that point. He said, you're slandering my brother. What you're saying about my brother is not true. And let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says do not mess with God's anointed. The guy said, look, I'm sorry about, you know, you taking this offensively. I think what your brother's doing wrong, and I, some of the things he believes is wrong, and, and uh, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. He said, well, I'm, I'm warning you. I, I, you shouldn't be doing this. You're, gonna, you, you're messing with God's anointing. Later that week, that man was killed in a car accident. He got his warning, but he was determined to go on. And then later that week, he was killed. I was... Now we're having this split in Calvary Chapel now that Chuck Smith has died. We're split into two organizations. Like I've told you, we'll maybe get in details about this later on. We're in both organizations right now. Kind of know which way we're heading, but right now we're in both of them. We'll stay there for right now. But there are a lot of bad things being said about Chuck Smith. He, he was an old man. He didn't, you know, he was, his, he was, his ways were antiquated. We've got to go in the more modern ways of doing church because we're not reaching the young people. Have you ever, you ever seen pictures of Chuck Smith when he was preaching? I mean, the guy was old. He was older than I am. But he had a lot of young people in his church. It was full of young people. I don't know where, where they were coming off with this. That somehow he was just reaching nothing but old people. Look, the word speaks to forever. The word of God endureth forever. Whether you're young or old or ancient, This word speaks to you. And those people that are speaking bad about Chuck Smith, even though he is past, they're speaking bad about God's anointed. You know, I see people write books about the Apostle Paul saying he was a homosexual. Man, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near those people. 
God's going to come down on those people at some point. And so don't mess with God's anointed. And, he, and, and, and listen, and he goes back to the positive here. This gayest guy was really cool. He risked everything he had. He risked all those relationships he had in that church because he was going to get excommunicated out of that church. And listen to what John says in verse number 11. He says, Beloved. And he's speaking specifically to Gaius here, but, but also to all the church. He says, Do not imitate what is evil. Don't, don't imitate Diotrephes. He's a man of selfish pride. But imitate what is good. What Demetrius is doing, he's risking things. He's going out and he's depriving himself of things so he can save some Gentiles. Imitate that. Imitate Gaius himself. Show love to one another, especially those who are doing the work of the ministry. And for he does the good, for he who does good, watch this now. This is one you can put on your refrigerator. For he who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Can be any clearer than that? One more time. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. You know what John's doing right there, right? He's throwing a little subtle dart at Diotrephes because he wasn't doing good. And what he's saying is that man isn't saved. He has never seen God. Because if he had seen God, he would be walking in the truth, he'd be walking in love, and he's not. He might be pastoring the biggest church in the world, but he is not of God. But wait a minute. Let me ask you a question. How many people in this room have seen God? Two, two of us. Three, four, three. Anybody else? Four, five, six. <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you, if you hadn't seen God, you're evil. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have to, you don't have to be a real smart person to figure this out. Let's do it again. He do who does evil <laughs> has not seen God. <laughs> So if you've seen God, you do good. If you're doing good, you've seen God. Well, I understand why you're confused here. Because John himself, you guys are thinking back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, that no one has seen God at any time. John said that himself. And here he implies that if you're not evil, you've, you, if, if you're not evil, You've seen God. And those really, who really are saved have seen God. How can we see God if we hadn't seen him at any time, John? Come on, what are you talking about? Well, he gave us the answer. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. Let me read it to you. No one, John says the same thing in the Gospel. He says, no one has seen God at any time. Now let me... Let, it, let him finish. The only begotten son who is the, in the bosom of the father, he has brought him out into the open. 
He's exegeted him. He's declared him. So how do we see God? We see God when we see Jesus Christ. How do we see Jesus Christ? Read your Gospels. If you're in the truth, then you've seen God. Because in the truth, you see Christ in the Gospels. How do you see Christ? You listen to his words. You listen to the words of Christ in the Bible. This whole Bible are the words of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. He spoke through the Spirit. The prophets. It was the spirit of Christ that spoke through the prophets. And so all of this that was written, he spoke through Moses. It's Jesus Christ speaking to you. And so when you listen to Jesus Christ, you're seeing God. And then when you get born again, you see God. None of this makes sense to you if you're not born again. I mean, I'm just, I'm pleading with you if you're not born again. Give your life to Christ and it'll all make sense to you. And you'll see God too. And when you see God, you won't be evil, you'll be good. Because he'll make you good, and you'll do good, and you'll walk in truth, and you'll walk in love. And he says in verse number 12, back he's commended Gaius, and now he commends Demetrius. He says, Demetrius has a good testimony from all. I don't care what Dr. Feast says. He's a good man. A man worthy for you to shelter in your home. A man worthy for you to help provide for his ministry because his ministry is worthy. And you want to be a fellow worker in his ministry. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself because he knows truth and he walks in truth. You watch Demetrius is what John's saying. He's a man who you know knows the truth. You know what? I know the people in this room that know the truth and don't know the truth because you do good. And you don't do evil. There are people in the church who are still evil and they're still doing evil. They're still slandering people. They're still putting people down. They're still touching God's anointed. You know what? They're not walking in truth. Demetrius has a good testimony because he walks in truth. And we also bear witness. Hey, I know, as John says, I know he was a good person. I can't believe Dr. Fees did this. And you know that our testimony is true. Regardless of what Dr. Fee says, we tell the truth, John is saying. I'm the Apostle John. At that point, I wish he had done like Paul does in a few of his places and just let him have it. And say, hey, you know, I was beaten with 12 stripes. I was on the Isle of Patmos. I was, I, I was, I was beaten so many times. You know, I've, I've got stripes. I've got scars. Dr. Fee doesn't have that. And I tell the truth. And I know I tell the truth. And everybody knows I tell the truth but him. You know what? It's real easy. This is just a little book right here. It's so powerful. Let me tell you why. It's so easy to pick out the good guys and the bad guys in this book. It's really easy to pick them out. I mean, I've never met any of these people. And really, other than the Apostle John, there's nothing else written about these people anywhere else in the Bible. But I can pick out the good guys and I can pick out the bad guys real easy. And you can too. I mean, Demetrius and his friends, what were they? Good guys. Man, you know they were good guys. 
in the, in the world's eyes, they were nobodies. And how do I know that? Because if they had been somebody, I guarantee you Diotrephes would have took them in. Because he was about preeminence. He was about wanting to be seen. And so he would have took them in. So I know Demetrius and his friends were good guys. And, and they didn't care what the world thought about them. They, you know why? Because they had seen God. Let me tell you what. When you see God, you don't care about what the world thinks about you anymore. You don't care anymore. They had seen God. And how do we know they had seen God? Because they were doing good. They were walking in truth and they were walking in love. What about Gaius? What kind of guy was he? Good guy, right? I mean, he opened up his home for these people. I'm sure he gave them provisions when they went out on their journey. And, and so he was a good guy. He was walking in love and he was walking in truth. What about Diotrephes? Bad guy. Really bad guy. And you know, here's the scary thing. He might have had the biggest church in the entire world at that point. That's a scary, scary thing. He, but he was a power-hungry, selfish hypocrite. That's what he was. And he was so wicked that he would have the gall to slander the apostle John. I got a hunch things didn't end up so well for Diotrephes. I have a hunch he had some bad days ahead. Then John concludes with these final good words to Gaius. He said, I had many things to write to you, Gaius, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. I'd much rather see you. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Man, that's face to face with the Apostle John. What a deal. Peace to you. Our friends here in Ephesus greet you. Greet the friends, the ones who are true friends in your church that, that aren't like diatrophies. Greet them by name. Tell them I said hello. Let me ask you a question. How many of you before you came into this room today, and be honest, knew who Gaius was? Or remember, let me back. I'm sure you saw it one time when you read 3 John, one of the most popular books in the Bible, and I'm teasing. <laughs> None of us knew who Gaius was. Because by the world's standards, he wasn't a very important person, was he? But he was to the Apostle John. More importantly, he was to God. He was important enough that God put this little book as part of the 66 books of his canon. That's pretty important. Unless they up the number of books, we're not going to have a book about us in there. They being him, God. 
Why was he so important to God? Because he walked in truth and love. And because he walked in truth and love, he was one of God's anointed. You better not mess with God's anointed. How important are you to God? If you've seen God through Jesus Christ and you're walking in truth and love by his power, let me tell you who you are. You are one of God's anointed. And you better not mess with one of God's anointed. You worried about that coworker that's stabbing you in the back at work? You need to worry about them. God's going to take care of you. You worry about that person who's stolen something very important from you? Taking something very important from you, or that coworker who stepped all over you to, to, to get to a higher place. Don't worry about yourself. You worry about that coworker because he's touched God as anointed. You worry about the people in this world that are blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, our world is full of blasphemies. But on the top of any list is our Lord. Don't worry about him. Worry about those who are touching God's anointed. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're not one of God's anointed. And you, hey, you're walking, you're really walking by blind faith. You're walking in, into a lot of trouble. You're on your own. As John said previously, you, the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one, and so you are in enmity with God. But you can change that today. All you have to do is receive the gift that Christ has given you, his blood shed on a cross. Receive the gift and ask Christ into your heart. And guess what will happen? You will become one of the anointed ones. And nobody, when that happens, nobody had better mess with you because you're God's child. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the love you've shown us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we can be called children of God. You're anointed. Lord, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love you. And so, Lord, we know that no one can touch us. Nothing can touch us. The devil can't touch us. We saw that a week or so ago. The only harm that can come to us is the harm that seems to be harm that's not harm. The trials that come our way that you allow to, to grow and chasten us, Lord. So we know that we can trust you in all things. And we don't have to worry about 
all the dark voices we hear, we don't have to worry about the evil one. Lord, we're safe in your arms, in the arms of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. And we'll stand and close in a song.